Hello and welcome to Posting Up, the Washington Post NBA podcast. I'm your host, Tim Bontemps, national NBA writer for the Washington Post, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by uh, one of the guys that helped me get started on the Nets beat back in 2012, uh, Howard Beck, the esteemed writer for Bleacher Report, um, who apparently hates wings. And as someone from Western New York State, this is a great offense to me. So, uh, Howard, the floor is yours. What is your what is your hot take on wings? Well, you know I'm all about hot takes, so thank you for giving me the floor to uh, express my <laughs> my extreme disdain for wings. With apologies to you and all of your brethren from the Buffalo area, I know that's like the claim to fame. As far as I know, that I mean, I don't know what else there is in Buffalo. Wow. You know, I'm, I'm, Boom. But, <laughs> but wings, I, I don't get it. Uh, there's very little meat on these things. They're, they're sloppy to eat. They're, they're like bathed in sauce. It's too much work, and it's too much mess. What's the point? I could get a, a much more chicken, much more satisfying meal just with a single nice uh, breast of white meat chicken. Put whatever sauce on it you want. That same buffalo hot sauce, that, that can go on anything. It doesn't have to go on wings. If it's about the sauce, put on something else and give me a fork and knife. I don't need a basket full of these like grimy little wings with like you know a half an ounce of meat on each one that you got to like jam the entire thing in your mouth and pull off all this you know, stringy stuff coming. I just I, I don't I don't get it. It's uh, it's not worth the fuss. Uh, I don't understand how there's an entire chain of restaurants that sell nothing but this. It's uh, it's just beyond me, and uh, that's the end of my rant. Have you ever been to Buffalo? I have not. Okay, so hoity toity, Howard back from Northern California <laughs> uh, via via L.A. to to New York and now Brooklyn. If you ever decide to come to Western New York State, Howard, um, which you could have done this week since the All-Star game is about 70 miles away from Buffalo and Toronto, uh, you could have real wings, which, yeah, I agree with you in a lot of instances. If you have wings places, they are pretty small and and pretty terrible. But if you go to Buffalo, which I'm going to do on Thursday when I fly through Buffalo to go to Toronto because it was cheaper and easier, plus it was an excuse to go back to Buffalo briefly, um, I'm going to go to Duff's in Buffalo, and I'm going to get wings that are basically the size of a chicken leg, like one you get <laughs> off a drumstick, and they're phenomenal. And I'm probably going to have... They make, they make chicken... I didn't know they made chickens bigger in Buffalo. Listen, Is that right? You, when, you have, when you have wings in Buffalo, they are, they are both bigger and better than ones you have anywhere else. They are phenomenal. You go, and everybody will tell, for listeners who don't know, everybody there will say, oh, you should go to the, to the Anchor Bar... You know, and that that's kind of the touristy place to go. And the Anchor Bar is good, but you go to Duff's. Anybody from New York, from from Buffalo, knows you go to Duff's. There's a bunch of locations, and you get real chicken wings, and they're the best. So maybe at some point you'll you'll have some excuse to go there. Maybe you'll take your family to Niagara Falls or something, and you can stop and try them. And I I, I dare you to to do that, and then tell me that you're. Uh, <laughs> You're still you're still this anti anti chicken wings, but I'm anti wings, baby. Well, on to on to more important matters. Howard is is the best, uh, and so you know, he and I when I started on the Nets beat when they moved to Brooklyn officially after covering them during the lockout season, both the Knicks and Nets. Howard, uh, proud Brooklyn native that he is, was on the beat for the New York Times. So I owe him a lot for helping me get through the first season, my first season covering the NBA fully. But along with that. Howard, for the last, I guess, well, you came to New York in what, 2004, 2003? 2004, yeah. Right. So 
So for the last 12 years, there's been no one more immersed in the New York basketball scene than Howard Beck. And, you know, as usual, for not great reasons, the New York basketball scene is back at the epicenter of the NBA again um, with the Knicks firing Derek Fisher, uh, someone Howard's familiar with from his days covering the Lakers, uh, by Phil Jackson, someone Howard's also very familiar from his days covering the Lakers, and the Nets in the middle of trying to hire a general manager a week before the trade deadline, um, which is just destined to go smoothly, I'm sure. So uh, I, I, re- I really want to talk to you about the Knicks, but let's start with the Nets um, and, and get that out of the way first. Um, you you kind of you kind of went on a a Twitter spree yesterday uh, with some with some info you had on the search and and some thoughts on what the Nets should do. So why don't you just kind of lay out where you see things at right now? And and kind of what what you think the Nets should do, um, you know, when they whenever they do decide to hire somebody here in the next few days. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the the first most troubling aspect of their entire GM search is that it's happening this week. They're doing all these interviews this week. The trade deadline is a week from tomorrow. So even if they speed this thing up, interview their you know ten half you know dozen candidates, whatever it's going to be, and hire by the end of the weekend, maybe you just you know, throwing a new general manager into the, the mix with just days to go before the trade deadline. And maybe they don't care. Maybe they, but whether you think you're going to make a trade or not, whether you're planning to or not, you have to have somebody in place in case an offer comes through. It's not even about your stance on making a trade or how aggressive you want to be. Often it's just about opportunities that are out there that you could be involved with. And so they fired Billy King on January 10th. So it's been a full month, and they still don't have someone in place. It just speaks to, I think, the rashness of that decision and just the uh, lack of thought that this ownership group and, and you know, the, the current um, the folks in charge on, on Procrow's behalf, I don't think that they really thought this thing through. I, I, I just think that this entire period of time here just shows the weakness of leadership of this franchise. So that aside... Yes, they are interviewing a bunch of people this week. They're interviewing some very good people. Um, you know, uh, you know, we know, you know, Brian Colangelo and Danny Ferry were guys who were in the mix from early on. I don't think Danny Ferry actually is, is staying in the mix. Um, and you know, they've talked to uh, uh, you know Arturis from Denver, and they've talked to Gerson Rosas from uh, Houston. Now there's uh, reports of them uh, speaking to uh, Chris Grant, the former Cavs GM. Uh, a long list of, of folks, Sean Marks, the assistant, uh, assistant GM with the Spurs. So I, I, I credit them for doing a, a thorough search. I just think that this is something that they should have done much more quickly or they could have waited until after the season and, and not fired their GM a month before the trade deadline. That's neither here nor there. The other point I made on, on Twitter last night, though, is this. It's, it's uh, what I've learned along the way here as they've been talking to people, interviewing people, and trying to find you know, the next leader of their front office is that Prokhorov and his folks have made it pretty clear that they have no interest in trading Brooke Lopez, Thaddeus Young, uh, and that they want to keep this core together and just try to add to it this summer. Uh, personally, and I've been on the record with this for, for quite a while, and I discussed this on Zach Lowe's podcast, you know, a month ago. Personally, I've always thought that their best way forward, since they have no picks of their own for the next three years, the next three drafts, is to do what you can to get back in the draft. Trade Brooke Lopez for a couple of firsts if you can get them. Trade Thad Young for another first if you can get it. You're going nowhere anyway. This is a losing team. It has no solid core. Brooke Lopez, 
puts up numbers, but he's not a winning player. He's certainly not a guy you can uh, build around. Thad Young's a nice piece on a good team. On this team, he's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's for naught. And uh, going into free agency this summer, in a summer where every team in the league probably is going to have cap room because of the cap is spiking, means you don't have any advantage. You, you can try to sell New York. You can sell Brooklyn. You can sell their brand-new practice facility that they're about to open in Brooklyn. But you know what? It's 2016. Almost every team's got a pretty nice, shiny practice facility these days. Um, New York can be a selling point. It's not to everyone. And as we saw last summer, Greg Monroe and LaMarcus Aldridge made choices in free agency that were based not on market size or glamour, but that were based on where they thought they had the best chance to win. Didn't turn out to be uh, the, the case in Milwaukee for Greg Monroe so far, but that was his motivation in going there, was that they were a young team on the rise. The, the, uh, the Nets do not have anything to sell along those lines. You can't sell free agents on the idea of come play with Brooke Lopez and Thaddeus Young and you're going to have a bright future here. That's just not a winning pitch. Um, so I don't know where they're going to get in free agency. They seem to have deluded themselves into the idea that they're going to get a couple of free agents, patch it up and go, and be back in the playoff mix. And, you know, a couple of years ago, maybe that could have been the case. But the Eastern Conference has improved dramatically. Not a lot of great teams, but a lot of pretty good. And it's, you know, the days of, of being able to make a run at the eighth seed with a 37-win season are, are gone, at least for the time being. So to me, it's foolish to think that you just plot along with this same group add a couple of free agents and be fine. If you're going to be losing for the next two, three years anyway, and I believe they are with this group, with this core, then you might as well, as I say, auction off what you've got to the highest bidders, get a couple of picks. Yeah, they're not going to be lottery probably. They're probably going to be mid-first round, but you never know. Um, and I've got a – by the way, I've got a long list here. We can go through these of mid-first round picks and later that have turned out pretty well for teams. Um, you know, it's not as if going in the mid-first round, you all of a sudden are giving up on the idea of ever getting a franchise player or an all-star. You can get all-stars in the middle of the first round. Um, it, it happens almost every year, uh, maybe not every year, but good players. And if you're not going anywhere right now as it is, you might as well restock, get the picks that you've lost, uh, and try to build in the long term. And what they're doing instead is looking at the short-term view again, which is exactly how they got in this mess in the first place. Yeah, and let uh, I I probably should have had you split this up into two things, but let's let's spin back to that discussion in a second because I think that's a, a really interesting. I think there's a, an interesting discussion we had there about what they should do. But as far as the the current search, um, you mentioned a bunch of names. Uh, you know, Doctor Taurus Karnishevis from the from the Nuggets. They talked to Sean Marks from the from the Spurs. Talked to Gerson Rosas yesterday from the Rockets. Uh, they talked to Danny Ferry yesterday. Um, they talked to they, you know they've talked to Chris Grant. They're supposed to, I believe, talk to Brian Colangelo today. Um, you know, all indications are Colangelo is the favorite. I've been hearing that from the start. Yeah. I don't think that's Agreed. changed. Um, Agreed. I, I, you know, Brian, you know, Brian's a pretty charismatic guy. I have a feeling when he gets into a meeting with the ownership group, he will sell them, and I think he'll be the GM. Uh, and, I, and I think he will be in place sometime before the Nets unveil their new practice facility next Wednesday, the day before the trade deadline. Now, obviously, my, my issue with this whole thing from the start, and it, it goes back to your point about um, about the way it's been done, is if you're going to fire your general manager in mid-January, you should be hiring your general, your new general manager the next day or the day after. You, If you're doing that, 
it's because you know exactly who you're going to hire and you go hire them. To wait a month and now, like you said, I mean, they're they're probably interviewing, you know, I've heard up to, I've heard 14 or 15 or 16 different names of guys that have either been given interviews or, or were considered for interviews or were asked for permission to interview, which, I mean, yeah, on the one hand, it's good you're having that kind of in-depth, thorough search. On the other hand, you're doing it the week before the trade deadline, which, frankly, is just kind of a weird thing to have all these guys from other teams coming in and interviewing with you the week before the trade deadline. It's just kind of a strange, it's just a strange uh, situation to put teams in. And, you know, now you're, like you said, you're hiring a guy a week before the trade deadline or less. And, you know, is he going to come in and make trades? I mean, that would be weird. Um, it, you know, it, it's just a, it is just been very haphazard and it, and it does, it does to your, to your astute point, go back to, you know, the very haphazard nature of, really the way this franchise has been ever since you know you and I were covering it the first year in Brooklyn and just it's just been one one move after another that's been focused on the here and now um and 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 it is it is just strange that they didn't just wait until the end of the season and let Billy King go then like I think most of us kind of expected I guess before I get into the other point do you do you think like I do that they just got they that that Prokhorov and his, Mikhail Prokhorov and his ownership group just got uh, frustrated and just kind of did this rashly without really thinking about what came next um, and didn't didn't consider any of this other stuff because that's the only way I can look at this without and see how long it's been how long the process has been to hire somebody to think that they didn't really have any plan at all when they when they decided to get rid of get rid of Billy in the first place. Well, there was a part of me that gave them the benefit of the doubt when they fired Billy and Lionel Hollins in tandem on January 10th. There was a part of me that gave them the benefit of the doubt, thinking, well, it's a kind of a strange time to fire a GM. You don't see it happen uh, at this time of year very often, especially with the trade deadline approaching. But, okay, I guess they, they were that convinced that he was not the solution going forward and they wanted to get somebody else in. All right, there's a short window here before the trade deadline, but there is a window because at that time – from January 10th to February 18th, you've got a good, you know, what, five, six weeks or something. Yeah. So the so benefit of the doubt was they have a plan. They have somebody in mind. Um, they're going to fire Billy King, and somebody else will be on the ground within the next two weeks or something, and that person will have some time to get acclimated, figure out, you know, the situation, figure out what, you know, talk to, to everybody, get a sense of where the franchise wants to go, and then use all that, that information to have a plan going into the trade deadline. That was the benefit of the doubt. Uh, that benefit of the doubt clearly uh, was ill-placed. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't deserve it. I mean, we are sitting here literally eight days before the trading deadline with no full-time GM in place. And Frank Zanin, who you know, uh, was you know, Billy King's assistant GM, who we both know well, uh, great guy, smart guy, and is, is holding down the fort, but with a, 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 a skeleton staff now because they also had you know, uh, uh, let go of Bobby Marks last summer. So there's really very little there in, in the basketball operations department um, and no one with the authority really to do much. And they're just kind of all waiting for the new person to come in. And that person's going to come in, as, as we say, with just days to go before the trading deadline. And worse than that, Tim, is the fact that to go back to the point that I was tweeting out last night, Prokhorov having already decided we're not trading Brooke Lopez, we're not trading Thaddeus Young, you've just hamstrung your new GM who you have yet to name, you've hamstrung him from actually, you know, being able to really explore all options. What if there's a great deal out there? You don't know until you actually try. 
to see what somebody might give you for Brooke Lopez. I mean, a year ago at the trading deadline, they were, you know, not that far off from possibly getting Reggie Jackson for Brooke Lopez. The Thunder really wanted Brooke Lopez. They made a different deal. They got Ennis Cantor and, and Singler and Augustine. Um, but, you know, there were serious talks there. And Brooke Lopez, while I don't think he's a guy you can build around, he does put up numbers. He does have value on the right team. As we saw with Timofey Mozgov last year, who was not the most, you know, talented center in the world, Timofey Mozgov got two first-round picks uh, in, in, that, in that trade to Cleveland. Brooke Lopez, I would think, is worth at least the same, but, you know, hopefully, you know, higher picks. Um, there are possibilities out there. I'm convinced of that. And most basketball people I've talked to around the league are convinced of that. But your new GM of the Brooklyn Nets is going to come in with that already having been taken off the table, that you can't even look to try to rebuild uh, in, in a way that, that involves trading off your, your veterans. And I think that's really unfortunate, and I, I don't think it's a smart way forward. And, again, I just think it shows a, a lack of understanding on the part of this ownership group of how the NBA truly works. And now, and to be clear, I agree completely that it doesn't make any sense for you to be hiring a general manager and telling them what they're going to do before you hire them. Um, you know, it's not, you don't have, you're, you're not telling him you're not allowed to trade LeBron James. So, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense to do that. However, to play, to play a little bit of devil's advocate to your point, um, it, it's easy for people to say that, and you, you did a great podcast with Zach and kind of broke down a lot of this stuff with the Nets and, and you guys are talking about how it's a sunk cost that the Nets have given up these picks. And, yeah, it's true. Yeah. It is a sunk cost. However, it, it's one thing to just say it's a sunk cost, and it's another thing to be the people that are involved in the actual sunk cost and having to sit through the next 24 months and watch, you know, and, and, and tear this down team down completely and give up, you know, to, you know, maybe three straight top five picks to a team in your division. Um, not the divisions are the end of the world, but just to another team and know that you dug yourself this hole. So I do think there is an argument to be made that given the situation the Nets are in, you know, where they do have they have Brook and Thad and basically, you know, Rondé Hollis Jefferson, who looked really good until he um, you know, he injured his ankle a couple months ago, should be back soon. And Chris McCullough, their other rookie who you know, it was a good gamble for them to take at number 29. It was a guy who probably would have been 10 or 12 spots higher in the draft, maybe more, um, if he'd been healthy. And who, you know, I was at the game Monday night when he played for the first time this season. And, you know, it was one game and he played about 12 minutes. But he's an athletic kid. He could play some defense. He could shoot a little bit. Um, you know, he's got the potential to maybe be a stretch four. So, you know, there's there's a couple young pieces there to get excited about. But I I do think that there is a case to be made that, Instead of completely tearing it down, it might not be the worst thing for them to go out and, you know, say offer a couple of young guys maybe more money than they should get. Guys like, you know, offer Harrison Barnes a max. Maybe offer Evan Fournier a bunch of money, another restricted free agent wing. And try to get try to get some some decent young players and 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 some undervalued guys, maybe find, you know, kind of like what Danny Ferry did in Atlanta. You know, maybe sign, you know, find Damari Carroll's and find Paul Mills. You know, Paul Millsap was just undervalued for some reason on the market. But, you know, try to try to piece together a roster with Brooke and Thad and, and try to win, you know, 40 or 42 games and and try to turn around the image of the franchise a little bit and not 
not that not that winning 42 games is the end all be all or, or trying to be 500 but I, I think you'd agree with this Howard from being around this team the Nets in the view of people around the league are just kind of a laughing stock whether it's media yeah. wise whether it's uh perception wise from other teams they're just kind of looked at like this bizarro organization that you know they've got this Russian owner that flies in and out and you know they've been made. They made all these crazy trades and spent a, more money than anyone's ever spent in league history. And now they're just this embarrassment in in you know in this in Brooklyn, this brand new arena. And now the team is terrible, and there's not much there. So I, I do I do wonder if it wouldn't be a bad thing if you're not you don't have these picks anyway. So losing uh, you know why you say that there's there's no incentive to you, you know like you you shouldn't worry about the sunk cost. And I agree. But there's also no real incentive to lose either. And so if you could maybe start to turn around that perception a little bit while you are stuck in this position anyway, I, I wonder if that might not be a bad outcome. And I will say at the same time, if you could get three or four first-round picks combined for Brook and Thad, I, I'd probably do that. But I, I just have a hard time, given Brooks' injury history specifically, that you're going to do better than – you know, lottery protected first round picks for him. And I just want, I just would think that his value to you on the court is probably more than getting a, you know, a lottery protected pick or two. Cause yes, you could draft Giannis, but you could also draft, you know, he was, I think the 15th pick, but you also could draft baby Nagara and Shane Larkin, who were the 16th pick, I think back to back years. So it, you know, when, when you get in the mid lottery, you know, you, yeah. it's a real crapshoot. And it's tough to pray Brooke yeah. Lopez in their situation, I think, for a crapshoot. Right. So several points there. And, and, and look, your devil's advocate position there, it, you know, I don't dismiss it at all. And I got some pushback from some Nets fans last night on Twitter who were absolutely convinced that they've got to keep Brooke Lopez and Thad Young as if those guys were suddenly going to lead them, <laughs> you know, uh, to, right. to glory. I don't right. quite understand the attachment, but um, I get it. You're, you're, you know, it's hard when you don't have your own pick to say lose because there's no incentive to lose. What I'm saying is you're losing anyway. You know, by the way, you're on pace as a team right now for about 21 to 22 wins. They've got the second worst record in the East, uh, the third tied for third worst record as we speak in the entire NBA. That's with Lopez and Young. So they're not, these guys aren't changed in the world. You're already losing. Those picks that you're giving to Boston are already going to be very good. Um, making Boston's picks less good by winning a few more games doesn't help you at all. It may hurt Boston, maybe. It doesn't help you as a franchise at all. So that's the sunk cost thing. And so to your point, okay, you go into the summer and you make a plan to say, look, we can't get the top free agents because there's no incentive for them to come here. But what if we could overpay a few guys? What if we could overpay, as you put, uh, put it, with maybe a Harrison Barnes or Evan Fournier? I'm sure there are others we could go down the list of. Yeah, I just didn't go okay. make a list of make a list yeah. of guys. Right. But 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 then what? Because first of all, I don't know that uh, Evan Fournier, Harrison Barnes, or anybody else in that strata of player, in combination with Young and Lopez and whatever McCullough and Ronda Hellas Jefferson become, that's still not a playoff team in the East where, look, the Orlando Magic have a really nice group, including the aforementioned Evan Fournier. The Magic have a really nice young group of players that they've drafted and, and put together, assembled over the last several years. They're still five games below 500 as we speak. And they've got some, some decent young talent there. The Washington Wizards, who have Wall and Beal, one of the best backwards in the league, granted have been injured a little bit, Beal in particular, um, 
there are four games under 500. The Charlotte Hornets, who have gotten some some great performances over the course of the year from Kemba Walker and Nick Batum has been great. They're a 500 team. These are all teams that are far ahead of the Nets right now. The Knicks have a, a young, growing Porzingis. The Bucks, we know that they're underachieving right now. They're ahead of the Nets. Are Evan Fournier and Harrison Barnes and anybody else you and I can throw out that you could overpay just for the sake of getting them going to make you better than those teams? I think that's very doubtful. And on top of that, overpaying a guy last summer, you could justify by saying, well, when the cap spikes, it won't look like an overpay anymore. Or a, 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 you know, a, a contract signed in 2013 won't look like an overpay once the cap spikes in 16 and 17. Well, an overpay this summer, it's just going to be an overpay. And, and yes, the cap is going to spike again in 17. But the cost of getting a couple of players at higher than their likely value, just because that's the only way you can convince them to come, means you might be tying up your cap space and creating an even bigger problem for yourself in the years to come. And I just think that's the wrong way forward. That's the, that's the way the Knicks always operated. That's the way the Nets have somewhat operated, too. It's this idea that if you just spend enough in the present, you can just spend your way out of this and don't worry about the future. And what I'm saying is when you trade Brook Lopez and Thad Young for picks, and again, I don't know exactly what they would fetch, but you are giving yourself more flexibility because you're getting guys who are going to be on fixed rookie deals that are an incredible bargain. You'll have that much more cap flexibility, and you may lose a little more in the, in the near term. But guess what? Again, they're already losing at an incredible rate. I don't see that it's a big sacrifice at this point to trade the guys who have been able to lead you so far to 14 wins in 53 games. <laughs> um, I want to address the draft pick thing, though, Tim, if you don't mind. No, please. Uh, go for it. I, 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 I you know, went down the list a little bit just, just for fun. Sure. Because the, the answer is often, okay, let's say you got two picks for, for Brook Lopez. They're going to be lottery protected most likely, or at least top 10 protected. So, you know, Brook Lopez, he puts up numbers, you know, 20 and 7, 20 and 8, 20 and 9, whatever he's going to get. Um, well, first of all, of course, he's a defensive liability, especially in today's NBA because he can't guard the pick and roll at all. Um, so you're giving up something for those, for those numbers he's putting up. But, you know, I get it. There's a value there. But here's the thing. If you could get a pick that was only top 10 protected, or maybe it's lottery protected through 15 the first year and then the, then the protections as they're often in these deals. Sure. Goes start down. to evaporate, you know, right. versus top 15 and it's top 10. Um, there are good players to get. So let's just talk about some of those because right off the top here, I mean, it, you don't have to look too far back. Paul George was a 10th overall pick. Maybe you're not getting a top 10, but Clay Thompson was an 11th overall pick in 2011. And then you start going through some of these others. Eric Bledsoe, been hurt, but a very good player. 18th overall pick in 2010. Yep. Kawhi Leonard, 15th overall pick in 2011. Just 2011 alone, by the way. Kawhi Leonard, 15th pick in 2011. Jimmy Butler, the 30th pick in that same draft. Yep. Reggie Jackson, the 24th pick in that draft. Chandler Parsons, second round, 38th pick in that draft. Um, the next year, Draymond Green, 35th. We know that story very well, of course. Right before Draymond Green in that draft, Jay Crowder. I mean, how, any bad. team right now would kill to have a couple of Jay Crowders. Sure. Um, 2013, you mentioned Giannis. He was 15th. Dennis Schroeder was 17th. And Rudy Gobert was 27th in that draft. Um, you know, go back to 2008. Serge Ibaka was 24th. Dragic was 45th. DeAndre Jordan, 35th. Nick Batum, 25th. Sure. These are all in the same draft, mind you, in 2008. Sure. There are yeah, plenty. I'm not. There, there's I'm... talent there if you trust your front office and your basketball people to find the right guys. 
there's plenty of upside. And if you got a couple of those picks, and then you add that to, to a, you know, a, a promising Chris McCullough and Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, you start to put together the kind of young core that maybe grows together and becomes something that you have to be willing to say that, you know what, we're going to have a couple of lean years. And, and, and most franchises at some point just make that admission and say, you know what, we've we got to suck it up for a little bit here because this is the best way uh, for the long term. And the Nets just don't seem willing to do that. Well, and uh, listen, I, I, I mean, yes, I agree. You can definitely find talent there. And like I said, if if I if I knew I could get three or four first round picks for those two guys, I would I would definitely consider trading them. So I, I was looking at it more from the perspective that, given you know, like you said, some of the issues about Brooks' game specifically, and um and in his injury history, which I think is the bigger concern for teams. Um, sure. I think I think it would be tough for them to get that. Um, and and also, well, he's also had he's uh, also in the second full season of not yes, being hurt. Yes, I mean, he is. There's, there's, yes, he he's is. on a, on a roll here where you can feel feel a little more confident. Right. And the other thing I should clarify is when I was talking about overpaying guys, it, it's not like I I specifically mentioned those two guys that I did because they're both I think under twenty five and like sure it, it was more my point was more that instead of spending a ton of money on some guy that's in the, the Brook and Thad range, you know, 27, 28, you know, uh, if you're going to go out in a free agency and spend money, ideally, if I meant more that you're going to overpay for a young guy that a team like Orlando, say Orlando can't keep Fournier because they've got all these young guys. And I'd, I'd rather go, you know, try to get some guys, you know, kind of buy yourself, not necessarily buy yourself picks, but buy yourself buy yourself some growth potential as opposed to just buying guys that, you know, are what they are or are going to be on the downside. Um, you know, like if they could somehow, if you know, if the Nets could get Mike Conley to sign with them, obviously they'd want to do that. But chances are two or three years from now, Mike Conley's contract isn't going to look great. Um, no matter he's how not good coming anyway. And he, well, sure. No, exactly. But I just meant that's why I was I, – I just want to clarify when I said overpay. It wasn't, you know, just go overpay anybody. Um, you right. just, they just have to try to create as many assets as they can, um, and that and that's why, to your initial point, anybody saying that they should or should not be trading, you know, the, ruling out trading guys now is silly because they just have to try to create as many assets as possible. And if you know, if you can get one, you know, water protected first or Brook, maybe don't trade them. But if you can get two, or like you said, if you can get one that's top 10 protected and one that's lottery protected and they go down over time or something, then sure. Then you have to think about trading him because you just, you need to replenish as many assets as you can because the cupboard is, is so bare. Now, before, before we get off this team real quick, um, if we, you know, I think we probably both agree. Colangelo is going to be the guy. Let's assume he is the guy. Who do you think makes sense as the next coach of this team? Oh boy. You know, the tough thing about that, Tim, is you, you, Look at the roster, and you think, I mean, this is this is not a roster that's ready to win right now. So, who are they going to have? And I think before we know, you know, where they go in terms of a coaching search, I think we need to know a little bit more about what they're going to do. Let's say that it's Brian Colangelo who gets the GM job. Let's say that he comes in with the the constraints that I believe he's going to have, which is you can't trade Brooke Lopez and you can't trade Thaddeus Young. They're going to be the core going forward. So now you you go into next season with those two guys. The young guys we mentioned, McCullough and, and, and Hollis Jefferson, um, and you need you need an entirely new backcourt. 
and who knows who that's going to be. So it's, it's hard to kind of get a sense of, you know, like what coach makes sense when we don't really know is, you know, is this a, even a viable uh, competitive team? Is this a team that's just going to go through this weird slog of a couple of years of just patching it up until they finally, you know, get back to respectability somehow, some way without draft picks? Um, who wants that job? Now, there's only 30 jobs. You'll find somebody, obviously. It's, it's you know, these jobs pay well, and, and someone will take it. But, you know, Tom Thibodeau's not taking the Nets job. Um, I don't think Scott Brooks is taking the Nets job. Um, you know, Luke Walton's not taking the Nets job. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know, I don't know who out there makes sense at this point because I just don't see that there's much of a roster to entice someone. Uh, it, and if you're, if you wanted to just go young, um, if you were going to trade the veterans and get draft picks and, and try to, to to build this thing with youth, then you go, okay, look, I need somebody who's like a really good developmental coach, a guy who's just like great with young guys because I don't expect to be in the playoffs right now, so I don't need a Tom Thibodeau. I, I just need a guy who can develop these guys. Well, Scott Brooks actually did a great job of developing Durant, Westbrook, Ibaka, and, and the rest out in, in Oklahoma. Um, you know, the guys like Kenny Atkinson, who we both know very well. You know, Kenny, you know, great assistant coach in Atlanta, waiting for his first opportunity to be a head coach. I think he'd be phenomenal with the young team because that's his strength is, is working with young guys and, and teaching them uh, developing their games. So it really just depends on what kind of team they, they think they're going to have. But uh, it's going to be interesting. Um, I, you know, what, you know, who fits? It, it just depends on the roster. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I think Kenny would be a really interesting choice. Um, like you said, he's, he's a guy that's, that's you know, been a player development guy for a long time, and, and it would make a lot of sense. I think, I think too, if Brian is the, is, the, is the GM, I think you have to look at the last two coaches he's hired. and Or, or I shouldn't say the last two, but – two of them, which are uh, Mike D'Antoni, which would be interesting, though he he's a guy that probably wouldn't fit well with Brooke Lopez, uh, for starters, but, um, you know, I'd be curious about that. And the other guy that would actually be, I think, a pretty good fit is Dwayne Casey. And, like, look, obviously right now Toronto's rolling. They're the second-best team in the East, but, you know, we we have seen what Toronto has done in the playoffs before. And if Toronto doesn't have doesn't fulfill the the way they're playing right now in the postseason you i think you could see a change there and if that happens i think Dwayne casey might be a very good fit um for the nets and he's a guy that brian hired when he was still the gm of the raptors yeah no i, I think i think uh familiarity and and the connections that we've seen between guys before i think it always makes sense to look that that way just as with phil jackson looking for you know guys who have ties to him um you know, I would love to see Colangelo and, and D'Antoni together again. Um, and if you're going to go for this idea that, well, we'll just sign a bunch of free agents and, and take off. Hey, look, Jeremy Lin's out there this summer. I'm sure he would love a D'Antoni well, reunion. I thought about that the um, other day, and the Nets need a point guard too. And you could probably they, get you could probably get Jeremy for a decent number after coming off of the season he is too. Right, and 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 you know, I've always thought you know, and then you know this because we've had these conversations ever since the Nets moved to Brooklyn. You know, the idea of doing things to kind of tweak the Knicks, they they relish that and. You know, there's some merit to it, but you know, Jeremy Lin still has a lot of uh, a lot of fans in this city, and uh, you know, a popular guy. Reuniting with Dan Tony in that pick and roll offense, um, you know, you wouldn't necessarily win a ton. You're still not a playoff team in, in my mind, but if your goal and the Nets' goal is often to just put butts in seats and sell tickets, if that's your goal, you could probably put together a pretty entertaining team 
with a Colangelo D'Antoni uh, reunion in Brooklyn. But to your point, I don't know that Mike D'Antoni would necessarily see Brooke Lopez as a real fit for him. And so now you're, you're back to that issue. Um, he's certainly not an up and down player. Um, and, but you know, like I say, these are things that you have to sort through. You have, that's why these things go hand in hand. You have to decide what kind of roster you're going to have before you can decide which coach makes the most sense. Right. Exactly. And you, you brought up Phil before, so let's transition to the Knicks. Um, I, I was in, I was in Westchester on Monday for the press conference that Phil gave after the, you know, I, I think pretty surprising announcement that Derek Fisher, uh, was let go. Um, I, I think, you know, for those that have been around the team all season, uh, I don't think it was a complete shock that he was fired. Um, I, I think it was more surprising at the timing of it. I think people thought as the season kind of slipped away that maybe at the end of the year something might happen. Um, but I, I, Howard, and you you know Phil better than probably anybody in the media at this point, just about from all the time you've been around him. I was really struck at how Phil kind of went right at Derek a bunch of times on Monday and 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 really seemed to take several shots at him for his, the way he communicated with him and with other assistants and um I just it just wasn't quite what I expected. So, you know, I, I know you at least paid attention uh, in part to what came out of that presser even though you weren't there and as somebody who knows Phil as well as you do, what what were your takeaways from from this decision and and kind of how Phil approached uh, explaining it on Monday. Yeah, well, uh, a lot of interesting points about, you know, how Phil made it very clear where the shortcomings were for Derek Fisher as a, as a coach. So a couple of things there. The first is that one of the things I always loved about covering Phil during uh, my Laker beat days, and it was a five-year run there, his first five-year run with them, um, was that he was always so honest. You know, not always. There are going to be days he was not going to tell you anything. But on the days that he had a message to send to Shaq or to Kobe or anybody else, um, or if he just wanted to tweak the opponent, Phil has always been blunt. Um, he doesn't mind speaking his mind and, and, and giving you a sense of, of what's really happening uh, if, he, you know, if it serves his purposes, obviously. And in this case, he, I think, was in a position where he had to really justify why a guy that he hired, that he handpicked, and took a bit of a gamble on less than two years ago uh, has been fired, you know, in the middle of the second season. Um, I, I, I think I would have liked to have seen Phil put a little bit more of the onus on himself. Um, I wasn't there for that press conference. So, you know, I only have seen highlights, but it didn't sound like there was a ton of reflection there on the decision he had made to hire fish in the first place. And look, I'll say this. And I've, I've said it many times, Derek Fisher in the years that I covered him in the years that, that anybody covered him as a player, you could see the qualities there that make up a potentially good head coach. Um, his communication skills, his leadership gifts, uh, his uh, knowledge and understanding of the game, his steadiness as a, as a personality. There's a lot there that you would say, this is what you want in a, in a head coach. Um, but he was plucked straight out of his Oklahoma City Thunder jersey and put in the head coach's role at Madison Square Garden <laughs> um, and then handed a team that became a teardown. And, you know, in my mind, if you are going to take the risk as Phil Jackson of hiring a guy who has never coached before, who was just playing yesterday, then you should at least uh, be obligated to give him a little bit more rope, I think. And, you know, um, they've been losing recently. They went from a fringe playoff contender to, you know, out of the playoff race uh, for the time being. They believe clearly that this team is better than what it's shown in the last three, four weeks. 
that they had injuries. They're 0-7 when Carmelo doesn't play. They don't have much in the way of depth. I think Phil's done a good job of rebuilding uh, to this point, but it, it's not it's not done. It's far from finished, the rebuilding. Um, so Fisher was, was dealt a, a, a pretty rough hand, uh, but then you take a step back from that and you say, is it really about the results? And I know Phil Jackson said, well, we've lost 9 of 10. I don't think it was about that as much as it was about the other things you alluded to. Um, development of some players, and uh, I think specifically Jaron Grant, who'd fallen out of the rotation, um, communication, uh, other fundamentals of the job that I think they just, just they decided, Phil Jackson decided, had fallen short of expectations. So, but that's on him in a large way because he did take a chance there. And instead of going out and hiring an established coach, he hired familiarity. And in, in this case, you know, it, it was a, somebody who had never coached before. And I just, I don't know that that ever made sense. And now that he's fired him, I, I think we can safely conclude it. It didn't make sense. It wasn't the right choice. And, uh, you know, we'll see where they go from here. Yeah. I, I mean, and, and Phil kind of in passing said a couple of things like, yeah, I could have mentored Derek better and, and things like that. But I, I certainly, I certainly wouldn't take it. I, what I listened to as, uh, as Phil accepting responsibility for what happened. Um, and, and to your point, you know, I've been around Phil far less than you, but have watched him from afar for a long time. And Phil always knows what he's saying. And he always, he, you know, he might not say it straight away, but he always gets his point across if you know what to listen for. And I, I, I thought, you know, you mentioned that it wasn't just about the record. And, I, you know, Phil, Phil tried to say the Matt Barnes thing had nothing to do with this. I fundamentally would reject that, I think. And not, not that they decided to fire him because of that, but uh, that was obviously a hugely embarrassing thing, which Phil admitted for the organization. It obviously looked bad on for Phil as well because was, Derek was his guy. And, and I had been hearing even back in October that that, that move kind of started the clock a bit. And after Derek had basically nothing, no pressure out of last season, despite as bad as the Knicks were, basically got a free pass for going 17 and 65 because of how bad the team was and Camelo was hurt. Um, you know, it, it's, it seemed like the clock started ticking. It was like, all right, well, this guy had better show something this year. Um, you know, and then, this, then the Knicks get off to a decent start and things look like they're going to be okay. Um, but it, it was really interesting to hear Phil kind of directly say, basically, that Derek had brought in his guys from Oklahoma City and, you know, Brian Keefe and some of the other guys he'd brought in. And, like, they were on one side. And Kurt Rambis and Jim Clemens, who were Phil's guys and that Phil wanted on the staff, were on the other side. And, you know, Phil even at one point just flat out said that, well, if Derek didn't listen to, you know, guys like Jim and Kurt, who are veteran assistants on his staff, that's on him. Um, and so... You know, do you do you think that part of the problem here is that Phil Jackson, who if he wasn't, you know, in the physical condition he was in, probably would love to coach still. Um, do you think part of the the problem here is that Phil kind of can't let that go in terms of you know having guys like Kurt and who is now the interim Kurt Rambis, the interim now is the interim head coach for the Knicks, um, and Jim Clemens on his staff instead of. You know, even even when you do hire a guy like Derek, um, right out of playing, like let him go out and hire guys that he's comfortable with, instead of saying, "All right, here's a couple guys to put on your staff that are my guys from way back, and and we'll you know we're gonna tell you what to do." 
Well, there's, there's a conversation that happens there when you're hiring a coach. So, you know, not privy to that conversation, but when Phil Jackson goes to Derek Fisher last, you know, you know two, uh, two springs ago and says, I'd like you to come coach the Knicks, um, and I like, I'd like you to coach the Triangle, as soon as Derek Fisher says, okay, I'm fine with that, I, I would love to have the job and I'll, I'll coach the Triangle, um, then hiring assistants who are steeped in the Triangle and who have taught it to many, many players over many, many years is logical. I mean, that makes sense. You know, Rambus and Clemens are guys who knew the system well, who've taught it before, and who also have, you know, a vast amount of, of coaching experience. And Derek Fisher, as a rookie head coach, certainly needed experienced assistance. So I don't fault that part of it. Uh, and, you know, look, Fish obviously was coached by those guys. So he knew Clem and right. Kurt Rambus very well himself. I don't think that's necessarily an issue. The divide in the staff, um, not necessarily an issue. The Matt Barnes situation, also, again, not necessarily the biggest issue, but it's certainly uh, a strike. And, you know, the one thing we know about Jim Dolan, the Knicks owner, is that he hates bad publicity, though he creates a ton of it himself. Um, but he, he hates controversy. He, he hates having the, his team be in the paper for the wrong reasons. And that was an embarrassment. And look, if, if the Knicks were still a game over 500 and, and holding on to the eighth seed, I don't think Derek Fisher would have been fired, no matter what happened with Matt Barnes and, and Matt Barnes's estranged wife. Um, I, that's not the issue. It, it, it didn't help. Um, you know, uh, Jared Jack, who, of course, plays for the Nets right now, but I remember talking to him years ago because he was buddies or, or knew Javaris Crittenden, who, of course, got into that whole gunplay incident with Gilbert Arenas years ago. I did a story once, that's a long way of getting this, but I did a story once on Javaris Crittenden and, and how this, this guy got into this situation. And I was talking to Jarrett Jack about it, wherever Jarrett was playing at the time. And Jarrett said, you know, it reminds him of something that his agent once told him early on in his own career, which is you can never be bigger than your problems, or excuse me, you can never be worse than your problems. Like basically whatever you bring to the table that's negative, you better be good enough, valuable enough to, to the team that, that, it, that it outweighs it. And, you know, the Matt Barnes thing doesn't matter if, if the team is doing great. Um, but if, if you're losing, too, and if that incident possibly lowered your uh, respect level in the locker room, which arguably did, then that's where your problems become bigger than, than you um, and bigger than and outweigh your value. So, you know, it, it's he could have survived that um, and I think did survive that. But the performance is still the thing. Yeah, no, and to be clear, that was more what I meant that he that the 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 Barnes thing isn't why he got fired. I mean, he would have got fired in October if it was that. It was just that it, I think it shortened the leash, you know. And when 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 you did, it, it reminded me of when the net to go back to the Nets for a second. It reminded me of when the Nets fired Avery Johnson. Um, in that over that summer, Avery Johnson had pushed for a contract extension because he was going into the last year of his deal, and when the Nets didn't give him one. You know the ownership was ownership was mad that he pushed for it, and so that created some tension. And so you know the Nets got off to a great start that that year, and everyone coached the month the first month. And then you know Brook Lopez got hurt, missed a few weeks. The Nets went into a losing streak, and you know the first chance they had, they got rid of the coach. And you know not that this is a completely analogous situation, but you know just watching it play out, it kind of reminded me of that. In that you know this was. You know, it, it, Derek. When Derek went into a rough patch, 
he did, he may not have had the same cushion he might have otherwise after after that and some sure. of the communication issues he had with uh, with Phil. And actually, as an aside to that, I meant to ask you: Were you? I mean, given the amount of time that Derek and Phil have known each other, were you kind of surprised at at what seemingly was a a pretty big lack of even a relationship between the two of them? I think Phil at one point said, "At some point, I'll have a relationship with the coach of the team," which. <laughs> almost made it seem like he didn't really talk to Derek at all, and he basically said he'd send Derek notes, and Derek would just reply with "Got it." Um, it, it it just was an it just was very odd to hear him talk like they didn't really speak very much. It just didn't. I I thought that was very strange. It was. Um, I was I was struck by that as well for two guys who had worked together for years as player and coach in L.A. and and you know I thought there would be more of a bond there. I don't know if that's just, you know, Derek's own sense of pride of wanting to, to have, you know, the autonomy. And that was a concern that I had going into this when they first hired Derek was, okay, Phil, Phil as team president, knowing he could not coach again, knowing that he physically could not withstand the grind, still wanted to have an influence on the game, still wanted his, his you know, system, his, you know, the triangle offense to be, uh, you know, implemented. And he wanted to be a mentor figure as well as team president. So, okay, you bring in a, a rookie coach in Derek Fisher, and now he's that's part of your responsibility now. Beyond just trying to figure out who are the best players to sign and acquire and everything else, you now have the responsibility of mentoring a rookie head coach. And I was never sure exactly how that was going to work because the coach needs to, to be the one in charge. The players need to know that he's the one driving this, this ship. And, you know, I was always curious about how that would function on a, on a practical basis from day to day. Would Phil Jackson be on the court at all? You know, and he said no. Um, you know, so where would the, where would the teaching happen? How do you, on the one hand, mentor Derek Fisher and teach him how to be a head coach, but also make sure that um, that that he's the one who's clearly in charge of practice, of shoot around, of rotations. So I'm guessing there was a natural tension built into that, and that Derek Fisher probably, in wanting to be as autonomous as possible maybe help Phil at, at arm's length, maybe more so than, than Phil would have anticipated. Uh, I'm, I'm speculating on that, but I, I think based on what Phil Jackson said the other day, it's reasonable to surmise that, that the relationship uh, was, was more distant than he wanted it to be. And, you know, uh, that's, that's part of the problem with, with uh, making the kind of hire he did um, and insisting on, on being, you know, this, uh, you know, on, on having a mentor-student relationship instead of just hiring a head coach who could be his own guy from day one. Right now, I, 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 in the wake of this move, you know, a lot of people have have kind of mocked Phil um, for the triangle, for his devotion to it, for the fact that you know he's probably going to hire another coach that wants to run it, um, and and that's all fine. But can you can you describe to people? like basically what Phil thinks about the triangle and how, how it, it kind of shapes him. Cause I, I don't, I think, you know, a lot of people I think just hear about the triangle offense and they kind of just shrug and say, that's kind of, you know, it's weird that Phil is so devoted to it, but um, you know, can, can you kind of explain to people who don't maybe know as much about Phil's background, why he is so insistent on it being a central part of what he's doing? Well, without getting into, you know, all the technicalities of, of, you know, various systems of play and everything, what I would say is this. 
Phil Jackson's basketball values, put, put the triangle aside for a second, because right. it, it ends up being a distraction as a label. That's Phil why Jackson's I wanted you to talk basket- about it, too. Yeah, so his basketball values, if we could call it that, his basketball values are rooted in the late 60s, early 70s Red Holtzman Knicks, the team that Phil Jackson was a part of as, as a young player, the you know, team that drafted him. And what Red Holtzman's approach was about, it wasn't the triangle offense, but it was an offense that was predicated on, you know, ball and player movement, uh, the pass uh, as opposed to the dribble for the most part, um, playing playing inside out, spacing, but also this balance, this idea that everyone's going to touch the ball, the ball's going to ping around until you get a good shot. And in the in the parlance of the San Antonio Spurs, you pass up good for great. You pass up the good shot for the great shot. And if you ask Phil Jackson about teams that he admires and likes to watch, and I had this conversation with him last spring, you know, he really loves watching the Spurs. He really appreciates what the Hawks, who are, of course, kind of an outgrowth of the Spurs, what they do. He loves what Steve Kerr's done with the Warriors. Those teams are not running triangle offense, but they are running offenses that exemplify the same basketball values that Phil Jackson relates to. Again, ball movement, player movement, share the ball, passive good shots for great shots, floor balance, spacing. And the triangle offense to him is is the, the best version of all of that. Now, people can debate that and argue about that, and basketball geeks can get into it. I don't care. Um, but what, what Phil Jackson wants is something that approximates that. So where it gets interesting is this, in the conversation that I had with him when I interviewed him last May, it was, and in other conversations I've had with him, he has often used the phrase, a system of basketball, not triangles, just system of basketball. Again, alluding to what he experienced as a player uh, uh, under Red Holtzman. And so I actually said at one point to him, so it doesn't have to be the triangle necessarily then. It just has to be a system that does these same things, that exemplifies these same values. And he said, yes, exactly. So I, there's some part of him, I think, that is open to the idea that somebody could come in and say, look, I want to run what the Spurs run, and maybe he'd go for that. Maybe it doesn't have to be 100% triangle. Even what the Knicks have been doing this season hasn't been 100% triangle. What Kurt Rambis was doing in Minnesota when he was there contrary to people's belief, was not nearly 100% triangle. Um, and again, every team in the league, for the most part, also uses some triangle in their own playbooks. It's right. just not a 100% thing. Um, so what I'm curious about in this next hire is whether Phil will go maybe a little bit outside of his group, because you know it's going to be hard to land Luke Walton. He's going to have a lot of offers, I think. Um, maybe it's Brian Shaw. But if it's not one of those guys, and there aren't that many other triangle-experienced candidates out there, would he hire a Spurs disciple, um, you know, and, and bring in somebody who at least shares his basketball values without necessarily sharing his exact basketball playbook of the triangle? That's what I'm curious to see. Now, I'll be very curious to see that, too. I mean, in my, I mean, to me, this search is going to be one of three guys. It's either going to – I mean, I think, I think, you know, I think that Luke Walton is the first choice, obviously. You know, I – it's funny. I was at, I want to say I was at the Cavs Warriors game. I've been to so many Warriors games this year, I can't even remember which one. But um, Luke was still coaching the team. I think it was the Cavs game, and I remember Luke was walking off, and he was talking to a few of us. And somebody mentioned Phil, and he he told you know some story about how Phil would you know get on guys at practice or something, and he 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 just kind of he just kind of shook his head and said, "I really love that guy," you know, as he walked off, and you know. I, I, you could see 
you can see why him and Luke would Phil and Luke would kind of have a kindred spirit. They're both kind of they both kind of have the same personality in a lot of ways. And um, Luke played for him for a long time, and I I I could see. I could see the appeal of that to Luke to come work for him. And and frankly, you know, the Knicks are in kind of a weird spot now, Howard, because I don't know what you feel about this, but, you know, for so long they've been just a joke and, you know, just this team that had no hope and nothing going for it and and things were just kind of a mess. But they don't have their draft pick this year, um, the the final remnant of the, the disastrous Andrea Bargnani trade. But... Yeah. After this year, they have all their picks, and yeah. and they have you know one of the brightest young talents in the league, in Kristaps Porzingis. They still you know whether they should trade Carmelo or not, we'll get to in a minute. But they still have Carmelo Anthony. They're going to have cap space. I mean, I I kind of I I kind of look at this Knicks job, and I I wonder if this isn't one of the better jobs, if not maybe arguably the best job that will be available this summer, which is a weird thing to say after all the years of the Knicks just being a disaster. I, I mean, there's certainly a much more attractive job now than they have been in the last few years. Um, and Porzingis is, is an incredibly bright young talent. He's not an all-star yet. He's not a superstar yet. He's not a franchise player yet. So let's just qualify all, all sure. this. I know sure. that in, in, the, in the city that, that uh, we cover basketball, you're <laughs> never allowed to like tamp down the height, but let's tamp it down just a, like a, a, a millimeter or two. Right, right. Um, his future looks incredibly bright, and I think any coach, any aspiring head coach, current head coach, anybody who's looking for a job this summer, I think would find it attractive to be the one coaching uh, Porzingis uh, and, and seeing what he becomes and, and helping that development. But, you know, they still need a surrounding cast. And Carmelo's going to turn 32 in May. His knee issues have not gone away, might never go away. And the rest of the roster, you know, it's okay. You know, Robin Lopez was a perfectly nice pickup, and Aflalo was a good pickup. And I, th- I still think Jaron Grant's going to be a good young player, and, and Galloway has, has shown some promise and, and has been solid. But this isn't a great roster. It, it's, it's a roster that's still in transition, that is still a few pieces away. And by the time Porzingis is an all-star, assuming he gets there, Carmelo could be 34 and, and really on the downside. So um, I, I think it's a, a good job. But, I mean, you know, again, counterbalanced by the same things that, that scared Steve Kerr off a couple of years ago, aside from the fact that you know, he had a much better opportunity with the Warriors. But, you know, the owner. It's, Jim <laughs> Dolan still owns the Knicks. He still, Jim the Dolan still owns the Knicks. He's still the haunting specter over the franchise. And if you are a GM or coach who is considering working for the Knicks, you have to consider Dolan's track record, his impulsiveness, his meddling, everything. He's been better since Phil got there. He's, he's receded to the background. But, I, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't trust that that's a permanent state of affairs by any stretch of the imagination. To the point of, of other jobs and, and, you know, what's, you know, more potentially more attractive um, if you're Luke Walton or anyone else on the market this summer. I mean, look, the Houston Rockets, who were in the conference finals less than a year ago, uh, have an interim coach. So I, I, I still believe that uh, James Harden, Dwight Howard, and then the rest of that group, that's still a better job than the Knicks, at least right now. Um, the Minnesota Timberwolves have an interim coach. They're going to be looking for a new coach. They've got Carl Anthony Towns, Andrew Wiggins, and a bunch of other really right. interesting young players. Right. That's a better job. Um, 
you know, uh, the Washington Wizards could fire Randy Whitman. That, you know, that seems like a perennial potential, uh, you know, uh, happening. But if that happens, you know, again, John Wall, Bradley Beal, I think they're ahead of the game, ahead of, of the Knicks in that regard. So, you know, there's going to be a number of jobs open this summer. Um, and I do think that some of them are going to be more attractive. But that's not to say that the Knicks job won't be attractive. I mean, it's it's the Garden. It's still got the allure of, of the Garden and of New York. And and all the the uh, promise of Porzingis, but it, it's not a no brainer. And if you're Luke Walton, and if you're going to have multiple teams coming after you, I just don't know that the Knicks are really the top of that list. And you know, and I don't know if the advantage of fits being Phil Jackson making the pitch, if that's enough. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be the first time the Knicks have been passed over for a better opportunity. You mentioned Steve Kerr, and there's been others in the past that, whether it's players or coaches, have have said, you know what, I got a better shot somewhere else um one one name that uh, and you mentioned the the system thing with phil and that he wouldn't necessarily be wedded to the triangle um ian begley i don't i think he might have been on zach Lowe's podcast the other day i don't remember where i i, I know ian said it somewhere but i was kind of struck when he, he mentioned david blatt as maybe a possibility and obviously you know the david blatt era in cleveland was a interesting one on a lot of levels but um one thing I'd forgotten about is that he is best friends or very good friends with Steve Mills. I think they played at Princeton together. Steve is the GM of the of the Knicks, uh, working under Phil, um, and presumably will be with the Garden after Phil is gone, whenever that period is, because it doesn't seem like Phil is going to be there forever. Um, and and people probably don't remember this or even know it, but when but when David Blatt came to the Cavs. He talked about running the Princeton offense, which is, you know, it isn't the triangle, but it has a lot of the, you know, the same elements of ball movement and, and player movement and et cetera, and, and tried to implement it for a while until basically LeBron and those guys just said, we're not going to run this. Um, do you, whether it isn't, whether it is, and I guess I, without making you say like, whether you think Blatt will be the guy, like how, how realistic do you think it is that he might go outside of that tree? Or do you think that, like I do, this job is either going to go to Walton Shaw, or if you know the Knicks do have an uptick here, maybe just that Rambis keeps it. Yeah, I mean, I still think it's more likely that it stays within the Triangle family, so to speak, uh, than right. not. You know, you know, possibly Luke, possibly Brian Shaw, and yeah, if if the if the Knicks do rally here under Kurt Rambis and make the playoffs, it would be hard not to just keep Rambis unless there were some other, uh, you know, other issues that came up along the way. Um, one of those three seems likely, but I, I do think that there is a chance that Phil goes outside the, that triangle uh, group if, let's say, that they don't rebound under Kurt and he doesn't want to hire Kurt and Luke takes a job somewhere else and maybe Brian Shaw joins Luke's staff somewhere. Who knows? If, if all those guys were off the table um, and Phil had to, to kind of sit back and decide, okay, you know, who who at least makes sense with me? I, I, like, as I said earlier, I think there are people who philosophically, you know, could share a lot of the same basketball values without necessarily being a triangle coach. Um, and I'll be curious to see if Phil is is open minded enough uh, on this time through to you know to expand that because I had even heard two years ago that he was open to going outside of specifically triangle guys. Um, he didn't end up pursuing that, but I had heard it that he was open to it. So, uh, you know, we'll see. David Blatt, the Princeton offense, I, I think it's an offense that Bill Jackson probably has has high regard for, you know, given uh, the principles behind it. Um, but Blatt, 
uh, not a great rep around the league right now. Um, I'm not sure where he lands if he gets another head coaching job in the near term. Yeah, I'll be I'll be fascinated to see. A um, couple things before we go. Uh, you mentioned Carmelo before. It was it was pretty interesting. Uh, Phil Phil said there were a couple untouchable players on the roster. Uh, and then when I think I believe is our pal Ken Berger who uh, followed up and said, "Well, Phil, who are they?" Um, you know, he he goes, "Well, Chris. Everybody likes Chris." Uh, which was a funny line, and and then he, and then he goes, and you all know that Carmelo Anthony has a no trade clause, which isn't exactly saying I really want Carmelo <laughs> Anthony to be on my team. So, you know, there's been all these talks about Blake Griffin may be available, may not be available, and and who knows what the situation is there. But, um, do you think that there is any chance that they would move Carmelo in the next week, and? Do you think there's any chance that he could be, end up on another team by the start of next season? I think there's zero chance he gets traded in the next week. Um, and I, I, while I agree that it was curious the way Phil phrased that the other day, that instead of just saying, you know, and Carmelo is our franchise player, or, you know, of course we were keeping Carmelo, then just instead saying, well, he's got a no trade clause. So that's Phil says off-the-wall things without intent. I know everybody thinks that everything he says has got this clear manipulative, there's an agenda <laughs> behind it. Like, right. Yeah, sometimes that's the case, and sometimes it's not. I think it's one of those cases where he just, you know, kind of said something that was supposed to be matter-of-fact, and it, it, it you know, gave way too much room for people to interpret. I don't think it means he doesn't want Carmelo. I think, if anything, he's probably as pleased as he's ever been because the, the kind of, uh, you know, the style of basketball that Carmelo's been playing the last... You know, been four or five, six weeks. Yeah, he's, he's been, been fantastic. It's yeah. the, it's the, I think it's the best I've ever seen him. It's been really fun to watch to see him expand his game. Does he? He's like he's hunting for the pass in a way that he used to just hunt for the shot. Um, and and he's showing that he's a, a much better passer than he'd shown at previous stages in his career. He's showing some some evolution. It's great. Um, you know, his knee is, is a concern. His age is a concern. And when you consider that Porzingis is the, is presumably, presumably the guy going forward that you're going to build around, you have to wonder about the long term there. But I don't think you trade Carmelo right now. I think they want to try to make the playoffs. Um, I think you always listen. And of course, yes, Carmelo does have the no trade clause. So it may be irrelevant unless it's somewhere that he wants to go. Uh, but you know, I, I think you see how this rest of the season plays out and then you reassess at the end of the season. You know, Once you figure out who your coach is going to be, once you, uh, you know, get a, a better sense of, of what you have with this roster, then maybe you entertain it. But for right now, the best thing about having Carmelo Anthony, other than the fact that he's still a phenomenal scorer, one of, you know, a top 20 player in the league, you, you've, he's shielding Porzingis from having to be the guy that everybody's focused on. He's, you know, both on the, on the court and off the court. Uh, one of his best values, again, aside from just the fact that he's a great player, is that Porzingis doesn't have to be carrying this whole thing. It's not like Julie Okafor in Philly or Carl Anthony Towns in Minnesota or the, you know, any, any of the usual high picks when you go somewhere and immediately it's okay, you know, you're the savior now. You know, go out there and, and save our franchise as a 19 or 20-year-old. He doesn't have to do that because Carmelo is there. And a lot of his success, I think, is due to the fact that Carmelo, you know, attracts so much of the defense's attention. And again, off the court, he's attracting a lot of the focus so that it doesn't all fall on Porzingis. I think that value cannot be uh, underestimated. No, I totally agree, Howard. And the the funny thing about that is you can go right to, to Tuesday night as an example. Um, you know, the Knicks, the Knicks are playing the Wizards the day after Derek Fisher is let go. Uh, there are no players made available 
um, the day of the, the decision on Monday. Um, so who talks before the game Tuesday? Carmelo Anthony. He's the only player that talks, I think. Um, and he, he has his own press conference, and, and he is allowed to kind of be, like you said, the face of the franchise both on and off the court, which I agree with you has made a huge impact on how um, Chris Tapps has able to, been able to just kind of ease into the, the stature that he's grown into in New York and, and it kind of allowed his star to, to rise without necessarily having the pressure of being a franchise player, which is an underrated thing that Carmelo Anthony has done for him. But Howard, this has been great. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing you this weekend. And if you could just uh, just plug some plug some stuff, whatever you got going on at uh, at Bleacher Report. I'm sure you guys are going to be doing stuff this weekend in Toronto, and uh, and and also let people know where to follow you on Twitter. Though I assume everyone already does. <laughs> yeah, well, definitely uh, follow me on Twitter at Howard Beck, just my name, and. Uh, Nothing to plug right away. I've got two really interesting stories that I'm very excited about that I don't want to uh, give away or jinx at the moment, but they'll be coming in the next couple of weeks. And then, of course, uh, you can catch me and my uh, co-host Noah Kozlov on Sundays on Bleach Report Radio on Sirius XM. That's uh, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on uh, Sundays, and we will be uh, broadcasting, of course, from Toronto uh, at uh, the All-Star Festivities this Sunday, and certainly... uh, Looking forward to seeing you up there as well, my friend. No, nah, it'll be good. Um, yeah, Howard's show is great. Check that out. Um, you can find my work at the Washington Post. You can follow me on Twitter at Tim Bontemps. Uh, please uh, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, and a five-star review and rating would be great. Um, thank you to Glenn Yoder in the Western States for the theme music for the podcast. Uh, Glenn's band is actually going to be in Brooklyn uh, next Friday, uh, the 19th. Um, so hopefully I'm going to try, I might try to do something for that. So hopefully, uh, you can get a bunch of people out to that. So thanks to him, uh, Howard, thanks again. And thanks to all you for listening and we'll talk to you again soon.